Hey, y'all. Um, unfortunately, this is not <laughs> the next preview episode for the season or the next preview of Made It or anything like that. Uh, I hadn't planned on releasing this, um, but I'm recording this on Thursday. <laughs> Yesterday night, I got news that uh, David Pose has passed away. Oh, man. Uh, David was struggling for a little bit and um, actually started kind of hit a rough spot not long after we spoke uh, and recorded the, the, the this interview that I'm re-releasing today. And he and I had last spoke a couple weeks ago, exchanging a couple DMs. Um, he had been super vulnerable, super brave in posting kind of what he was going through on, on social media, on, on Instagram and Twitter. And, um, you know, we were just talking real quick and I told him to hang in there and that if he needed anything and thanked him for that vulnerability... Um, what, <laughs> what really sucks is I'm actually recording this from New York, uh, for due to some unforeseen circumstances, I'm going to be here for another week or two. And I was going to hit David up. Uh, we had joked that I owed, I owe him a coffee. It was an inside joke. And, and I was going to be like, yo man, like, let me get you that coffee. Um, cause I'm, I'm, I'm staying not far from him. And I got here yesterday, and seriously, like two hours later, uh, I got word that he had passed away. So what really, well, like what really is sitting with me, what really is upsetting me, is that um, David never really accepted the the love th- that people had for him in this community, drug use, community addiction, drug policy, that kind of stuff. Because he felt he was unworthy of it, you know. When when he he and I when I interviewed him for this episode, um, he and I talked for like twenty minutes afterwards, and and, and he w- was just so like he 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 apologized multiple times. He's like, I rambled. I'm like, no, dude, like you were great. He's like, no, 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 like I'm not. I need to get better at this. <laughs> he, he, he reminded me a lot of myself in those moments. Like, you know, it, it's it, it's hard sometimes to see the stuff you're good at, and and you know, when when you yourself want to be better, and he was constantly like, "I got to get better at this." You know, his book was so good, but but he was quicker to point out flaws, and you know, he just was super down to earth in that way, and 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 couldn't see the love and uh, in, in, in how brilliant he was and what sucks is that the love for him on Twitter and, and other social media that we're, we're both part of I mean people are sharing stories people are just sending love people who don't even know him being like yo this is how much you meant to me and it sucks that he can't see that um you know, my heart goes out to, to his wife and his young kids. I, I just can't even, I can't even fathom what they're going through right now. Um, and it's a reminder that, you know, when you struggle with mental health, when you struggle with, with uh, addiction and, and, and substance misuse, like, you know, it's not, it's never, you're never done. Uh, this was unscripted, as you can tell. Like, I don't, I, I, I just... I'm sad that I lost my friend. 
All right. This one's for you, David. You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I'm your host, Jay Schiffman. On this show, I interview people with lived and learned experiences on the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy, but occasionally we talk about other subjects as well. Today's show features a conversation with author and harm reduction advocate David Podes. but first, Kid Mental, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new weekend. Choose your struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And you can bounce back, just as Jay. Come on in, listen in to just struggle. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Great to be back with all of y'all. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 29th. I just got back late yesterday from Puerto Rico. Had a wonderful trip. I uh, have to thank both of the major partners for this show, Bookshop and Roadrunner uh, Bookshop, because I read multiple books on on the trip, uh, and and you know couldn't do that without Bookshop. So thank you to Bookshop, Roadrunner twice actually. First uh, <laughs> in Old San Juan, in the middle of a conversation with with Lauren, I stepped off the sidewalk, and their streets are mostly cobblestone. Uh, put my foot down between two uh, cobblestone pieces without realizing it and uh, my ankle twisted Uh, for a moment I was like well there goes this vacation it was like the second day Um, but luckily we stopped in a a drugstore grabbed a a wrap and I covered my ankle in Roadrunner's muscle gel and I was good to go I I, I was I was fine we we did it the next day we did a tour of a a coffee farm which was a lot of walking Uh, two days after that we we went on a, a long hike through the mountain mountainous rainforest uh, to a to a swimming hole. More on that in a second. Uh, and I was good to go. I, I really could not have done this without Roadrunner's muscle gel. So really, sincerely, thank you to Roadrunner. Uh, as always, if you want to support either one of those partners, go to the link in the show notes. And uh, if you want to get something from Roadrunner, use the code CYS at checkout. You'll get 10% off. So um, thank you to both of those. Oh, the other Roadrunner uh, instance. When we got to this this uh, swimming hole, which was a basin underneath a waterfall, it was pretty beautiful, pretty spectacular. You could look out over a lot of Puerto Rico all the way to the ocean. It was really beautiful. Uh, I had brought a couple of uh, pre-rolled um, Roadrunner joints with me. So had some CBD, uh, some pretty great pictures on my Instagram. If you're not following Instagram, just go search for Choose Your Struggle or Jay Schiffman on on any social media. But uh, there's a picture of me in this swimming hole uh, (laughs) with a joint. And and I look very, very content because I was. So uh, again, thank you to Roadrunner. Uh, now, today's episode is with a guy that I am just such a fan of. Uh, he's he's a really nice guy, really smart guy. Um, it was one of those things where I've been following his work for a while, uh, thanks to, actually, big shout out to ML Lanzalotta, uh, who you all know and love. 
uh, because he was the one that first turned me on to today's guest, David Poses. So uh, check out David on Twitter. That's that's my first recommendation. Uh, really intelligent guy. Really interesting the way that he thinks about and promotes harm reduction. You know, safe drug use, that kind of thing. Uh, but more important than anything is grab his book. The way to Ver is, in, and I've said this on on a shows before. I've said this on, when I was interviewed. I've said this on social media. The Weight of Air is, in my opinion, probably the best drug book that I've read this year. And that says something, you know. I mean, uh, I read a lot of these. I, I'm, I'm looking at my list, not just of of drug books, but but of books, period. You know, and, and, and drug books are probably a third of that list. And, and this would be my pick so far of, of the best of the year. So um, really big shout out to David. As always, um, he shouts us out on the show. If you want a copy, he is happy to to help facilitate that. He was very nice in sending me one. And so as I always do, when I interview an author, if you would like a copy um, free of charge. <laughs> Sorry, David. Uh, although he he does promote also, you know, hey, do, do whatever you got to do to get the book. So uh, I will send you mine. All you have to do is reach out to me through the website, jshiffman.com, and tell me that you uh, liked uh, this interview and that you want to read the book, and I will send it to you. Uh, if you want to support David, obviously go to Bookshop. You can get the, the book there, or uh, he tells you a couple other places, um, and, and, and please do so because he is he is such a great guy and such a smart guy and, and uh, is really doing fantastic work around the issues of drug use and substance misuse. So um, grab the book. It is wonderful. It's not an easy read. Um, there are parts of it where it is, it is you know, as I say on the interview, if I was not interviewing him and instead was just reading about this person or this character, I would believe that it did not end well. So, you know, that is the warning. It is tough at times, uh, but 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 enjoy this book. Uh, and, and most importantly, I guess, enjoy this incredible conversation with the always insightful David Poses. In June of 2021, I accomplished something that is all too rare for those with lived experience. I told my story and made my call for change from a TED stage. The fact is, our society puts too much emphasis on those with learned experience. You know, the person who spent 20 years researching something. And that's okay, because those voices are incredibly important. They provide the information that the rest of us run with. But we can't minimize the voice of those who've actually lived these experiences. That person doing research can't tell you what it really feels like to go through withdrawals, and they shouldn't want to. We need all voices at these tables. So if you're looking for someone who actually has lived these experiences, who can talk about struggling with mental health and substance misuse, who can talk about what it really feels like to go through addiction, who can speak eloquently about the war on drugs from both a learned and lived experience, reach out to me. And if you're looking to create a more complete experience, a roundtable or whole cadre of speakers, I can bring numerous people with me who have experiences that are unlike mine and unlike anything else that you've heard. So reach out to me today and let's create a complete learning experience for your office, your club, your school, or anywhere else. Because these voices need to be heard and these lessons can create change today. Reach out and let's all choose our struggle. Find me on social media, 
check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman, on YouTube and LinkedIn, and choose your struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hi, I'm David Poses. I'm a writer and activist and a, a husband and father and the author of The Weight of Air. And uh, for my listeners, y'all probably know that name. I've mentioned his book a couple of times now, both on, on social media and on the show. Uh, it is, I, as David, as you know, because I've, I, uh, when I finished it, I sort of was, was nagging you a lot about how much I enjoyed it. It is mm-hmm. one of my favorite books of this year. And probably if I had to, to choose in my top two uh, drug books, and I've read a lot this year. So um, it wow. is one that I definitely Thank recommend you. everybody reads. And as I always do when I have an author on the show, when I have the book, uh, I give away a copy of the, the book at the end, my copy. And, and so anybody who wants one, uh, you know, reach out and the first person will get my copy of the book. So uh, before we really get into that, though, the book itself, you know, this this is uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but a very uh, vulnerable, open look into your life as drug, a drug user and uh, somebody who struggled with misuse and addiction. Yes, uh, definitely. Now, so then the question, I guess, before we really get into that, uh, the story, because the story is incredible. uh, Was this difficult to write? Because I couldn't quite tell from reading it. There were moments where it seemed like you almost, uh, this was therapeutic for you to to write this story. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that accurate? Or was I sort of reading into that a little bit? No, um, it's, it's definitely accurate. You know, I had kept all of this a secret. Um, from when I was, you know, 19 years old. I mean, my my family was aware that I um, spent some time in, in rehab, and my story was anywhere from six months to like a year and a half, even though it was three years on heroin. And then after that, uh, it went on for another 16 years, but nobody knew. And then 10 years of buprenorphine, like I, n- nobody had any idea about any of this um, until I was 42. And I thought I I wanted to tell my wife, um, and I I knew that she would be, you know, I was hoping that she would be sensitive um, and understanding, but I still felt so guilty for, you know, deceiving her. So the idea was I'm going to write this book and I'm going to give it to her as a, this is what's up, (laughs) you know, basically um, in a, in a much more sensitive way. Um, And so she was just unbelievably um, incredible about it. And it just kind of went from there. I will say, I appreciate that. That was the most fascinating part to me was it was sort of a big reveal at the end of like you were literally revealing your story to her and it was it was very yeah. very beautiful in that way as you talked about sort of uh, briefly at the end uh, how you did that and and as somebody in recovery I just can't I, I cannot fathom you keeping the depths that you went to as you as you say in this book a secret and also how you were able, let alone physically doing that, but how you were mentally able to keep this all a secret. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's, I think the thing about it that uh, confuses a lot of people or, you know, we, there's this myth that like you can't possibly be on heroin and, and function. You know, I see that from a mile away. But the fact is like there's millions of people all over the world who are prescribed opioids much stronger than heroin. And we know that they not only can function on them, but they need them specifically to function. So hiding it was never a problem for me. It's not like it smells, you know, like you you drink or smoke, everybody knows. And I was better on the heroin. So if anybody was going to think like, what's wrong with this guy, it would have been when I was sober. 
um, because I, I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, and that was the problem. I didn't want to, I hated the lifestyle, but I, I couldn't function, um, you know, without it. And, and mentally it was excruciating because I felt such overwhelming guilt and, and self-hatred for, um, what I was doing for, for, you know, needing some foreign substance to function. So I just hated myself the whole time. But if I wasn't on heroin, then I hated myself for entirely different reasons. And like, I was suicidal. So, um, you know, it really, it, it, it felt like heroin or suicide for a very long time. And, you know, I think I made the right choice. <laughs> I would say that you made the right choice. I, I, I would. I, I also. I think that the, the the hiding part that was so fascinating to me was more the lengths you were going to 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 acquire the heroin, right? And of course, and as I mentioned before, we started recording that we'll talk about you know policy stuff towards the the, the second half of the show. But some of those stories were. It, you know, took me back to, wow, you know, that there were people obviously I was around who were doing a lot of similar things, but man, the lengths you were going to, to, to get your supply was, was pretty absurd at times. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, you know, the other thing that I found kind of funny at the time, like, uh, you know, I, I had this job in advertising um, and I used to like shoot up in the bathroom at work all the time. And I came, I walked into a meeting one day, like right after I had shot up and I was wearing this white shirt um, and there was blood collecting in my elbow, uh, on the inside of my shirt. And, you know, I didn't see it. And somebody asked what it was. And like, you know, without missing a beat, I said, um, oh, I just shot up in the bathroom and everybody laughed. Uh, <laughs> and then when I made up something about, you know, a doctor's appointment and taking blood or whatever, you know, nobody, nobody questioned it. So, you know, I think, um, and, and that was, I wasn't amused by that at the time. Like I felt, I felt terrible about it. Um, but I, I, I wonder if I wanted to get caught perhaps um, because my system of acquiring the heroin, which I hadn't even thought about until somebody pointed it out to me recently that I always put a middleman between myself and the dope, you know? So like I couldn't go to, I mean, obviously there were exceptions and certainly in the beginning of my um career as a, as a heroin addict, but, um, you know, I, I, I needed some kind of insulation, I guess. Um, well, and let's talk about that, the beginning a little bit, you know, on, on, uh, not only do we not have time to cover the whole story, but I don't want to, cause I want people to read the book, but you started sort of, uh, your introduction to the party scene was, I think most teenagers would agree pretty cool. I mean, you were, you were sort of having a good time. Talk a little bit about that because that was fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, um, a friend, uh, a very close friend who, who I turned out was um, on heroin, uh, took me to a limelight in New York City, which used to be a, a you know, pretty serious nightclub. Um, and I met uh, all of the club kids and Michael Alec, who was in charge of the club kids, and, and we got along really well. Um, he hired me to be a promoter for Limelight USA and Tunnel, um, Peter Gation's clubs. And so, you know, from the, like at 16, I was um, I was having these massive parties and everybody wanted to be on my guest list and nobody had any idea that I was on drugs. I mean, like I got made fun of at high school parties for not drinking, um, you know? So like the impression that different people had of me was just so hard um, to balance and, and really just kind of crazy. But I mean, those nightclubs in the nineties were really, really happening. Um, and 
you know, there, there's just nothing like them today. Uh, and, and the people were just, I mean, there's so many amazing people and I'm still in touch with, uh, you know, some of them today. And I, and I think there is a, 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 a too quick assumption to, that people would jump to if they don't know your story to be like, oh, he was a club kid. Of course he, but, but that really, that, that connection wasn't your story. I mean, it wasn't that because no. you were a club kid, you started, I mean, you were no. very clear about this in the book, which I loved that for you, heroin was filling a hole. It was making you yeah. feel better in a way that nothing else did. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to the clubs through Rob because Rob was the source for heroin. Like if Rob was on a bowling team, I would have gone bowling instead of going to the clubs. <laughs> it so happened that I liked them, um, you know, but uh, it, it was definitely not a like, oh, the, the club kids got him. To, I mean, none of the club kids were on heroin at the time. And I, you know, I think that's a really important distinction because in my, you know, slice of suburbia, getting heroin was like trying to find, you know, weapons grade plutonium at the time. Um, and, you know, everything else was around. My, my friends were using, you know, uh, pot and alcohol. I mean, you know, as, as garnishes for activities and Rob, I had to, you know, and you could get anything people were offering, you know, do you want to take some acid? Like all over the place, heroin. I had to beg Rob for my first hit. It took like months of convincing him um, until I told him like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump off a roof if you don't do this. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the, the club kids were also against heroin at the time. I mean, they would do, you know, everything else, but there was this notion that like, you know, junkies are, you know, bad people. And, um, I mean, a lot of the stereotypes. Um, so, but, but then, you know, Michael, um, we, uh, we, we introduced him to, uh, heroin and, um, I mean, it was, it, it was really sad to watch what happened to him. I mean, I visited him in jail throughout, um, when he was there. And then when he got out, I mean, I, I talked to him just a few months before he died and I had to put a, um, you know, a wall between us because I knew that he was on heroin again. And, and I mean, you know, he's, I have one friend left from my heroin using days, um, Rob and Michael was the, the, you know, the last one other than Rob, he died on Christmas last year. And, and it was, I, you know, it, it was awful. Well, I'm very sorry for your loss. And that's sort of one of those things that a lot of people like us in this world that are, are pushing for more common sense uh, and safe drug policy do have to balance our own experiences with losing people close to us and knowing how different it could be in a, in a better environment in a, in a safer environment. And, and for you, you know, there were times in your book where I don't, uh, it almost sounded to me like if you hadn't had made it, if you weren't the one writing this, if someone else were writing your story, I would have believed that, that, that you would not have come out. There were some moments where it sounded like this may not end well. Uh, you were, <laughs> right. you were lucky that you Very. always, that you, you had the self-awareness to, to recognize this at times, but also had, you know, the, the opportunities, both mostly bad, but eventually good as well to get some, a little bit of help. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think at the time I thought I was being so careful. I mean, I had, I had an access to clean needles, so that wasn't a problem, but I didn't know, I, I hadn't thought about the idea that, you know, like I, if I, if my tolerance was like, I shoot a bag of dope in the morning, um, that was that. I didn't think about the fact that like, if I got 
uh, one bag from this guy and one bag from that guy. Smart. I mean, I had a consistent, you know, source, but anytime I switched, like the problem today is that the same as then not knowing what's actually in the bag. So the potency difference, if I had gotten a bag that was 10 times more potent than the last, I would be dead right now. And I didn't even think about that at the time. I thought like, oh, I'm being so careful. I'm, I'm only shooting, you know, I'm shooting a bag of dope. So the lack of excess and my awareness of that, like I wasn't partying. I mean, I was just trying to feel good. Um, so of course, how could I possibly die? Because, uh, you know, um, 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 I'm being so smart about this, but um, you have no idea. I mean, you know, it's like drinking a glass of, uh, you know, there's two pint glasses on the table and one has methanol and the other has hard seltzer and you don't know which is which you're fucked. I mean, right. you don't have a chance. And, and that's the difference. And I'm sorry, we're going to talk about policy later. <laughs> no, no, I love it. And, and I, I, like I said, I definitely have questions because you, because you studied this even more than I have, but uh, you know, staying on your story for a second, you were not jumping from dealer to dealer a lot. Again, that's kind of going back to what I was alluding before and, and people got to read the book about this, but uh, your, your, uh, like you said, you were setting up, you know, middlemen between yourself, but you were trying to stay with the same deal as much as, as, much as possible. Uh, and that always, that didn't always go well. I'm thinking mostly when you were up in, uh, in, in Massachusetts, right. That's where, uh, you were, you were using this, the, you were living there with yeah. your then girlfriend and uh, tell that story real quick of the dealer that you had up in Massachusetts. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I, I had a couple of, uh, sources. One, the, the first one was this goth girl who was, um, homeless and we would drive to Holyoke, uh, whenever. And she, you know, was a, a very sweet girl. She happened to be homeless. Um, she really, you know, cared about me and, and called me out on my bullshit. Um, the second guy, uh, was Henry who lived in a boarding house. He was like a, an older, you know, kind of the a very blue collar, um, you know, guy who I, I felt like he didn't even know my name, but we were together all the time. And then Roy um, was also homeless. He was Ariane's boyfriend. And I mean, he was just like this anti-Semitic, uh, complete fucking douchebag. Um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, so that was not great. <laughs> I mean, he didn't know that, but, you know, he would make these comments like all the time. And he was just you know, such a scumbag. And he ultimately, um, I was going to go back to school. I, I won't ruin it. Never mind. <laughs> read the book. <laughs> yes, read the book. Uh, but, but going back a little bit, I think what's so fascinating about that period of your, of your life is you are telling everybody and you have everyone convinced that you are in recovery, that, that you yes. are... Uh, you know, you spent some time in, uh, it was Betty Ford, right? Up in, up in Hazelden, yeah. Hazelden. I wasn't, uh, and, you know, I mean, yeah. Well, so that's where I'm going with this. I appreciate that you, you got yeah. that, that, that you were, you were, it's not that you weren't also using and also struggling in a way, but you were in a better place. So, so talk through kind yes. of your experience about how, uh, I don't want to say, harmful hazelden was that that's my word it sounds like but not no yours. it's harmful it was it well was then let's let's, you go, let's go with harmful then that's great so so talk a little bit about sort of that experience being there because i think that, not for listeners of this show obviously this people here know that harm reduction and all that but if someone's not familiar they would think that hazelden was a good place for you to go well that's exactly right i mean i you know addiction is such a reactive thing my parents i told my parents and you know, we look into colleges four years in advance, but we don't look into rehab. Nobody plans for that kind of stuff. So right. you call who you know, they say this is the best place. You send your kid there. And so, you know, my parents, I think like most parents, um, 
don't ask why you're using heroin. They go, you got to stop doing this. You're going to die. This is terrible. They're too outraged and scared to say like, what are you actually trying to accomplish with this crap? Um, and I was too ashamed of the heroin to tell them why I started using uh, because I was you know, suicidally depressed and I was too ashamed of that to tell them anyway. So I get to rehab and uh, from the minute I walked in the door, they're like, you have a disease and the only way that you're going to achieve remission is by putting your life and will in God's hands and, and working the steps of this you know, anonymous support group that uh, wants you to not be ashamed, even though an anonymous support group basically screams, you should be very fucking ashamed. Um, <laughs> And I just, I, I couldn't reconcile anything they were saying. And I told my counselor, I, it took all of my energy to tell him, you know, look, addiction is not my problem. It's a symptom of depression. Um, I would not need heroin if I was happy and functional. And he's just going like, you're making excuses. Heroin has absolutely no medicinal value. Um, this is addict mentality and rationalizing is, you know, whatever. And it's like, look, my rationale was rational and that's why I'm rationalizing, you know? Um, you just don't like it. But so he said, depression is an excuse, um, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and addiction is the problem. And, and he told my mom that it's worth mentioning that um, I had smoked pot a handful of times. I got drunk once when I was 15. That's the only time I've been drunk in my life. So I'm not a person who, uh, you know, goes out and does a whole bunch of stuff. I've never tried a hallucinogen. These guys knew that. Um, so he told my mom that I am cross addicted and that she needs to get all of the booze and hand sanitizer out of the house because I'm going to be desperate enough for a high that I will abuse anything. And I'm like, I, I'm not, I didn't have a prescription, but I was using heroin for its intended purpose. I was killing pain. I'm in pain. Um, you know, opiate receptors, uh, regulate physical pain and emotional well-being. My emotional well-being was fucked up. Opioids flood your brain with dopamine and serotonin, and that's how the shit works. It, they don't, you know, heroin doesn't know if I'm in physical pain or emotional pain or, uh, you know, whatever. So, so that derailed me in such a significant way that I didn't even realize at the time. But by telling my mom these things that were completely fucking insane, you know, like if he's depressed, that's the sign that he's on heroin. So, you know, which is the exact opposite. Um, I mean, it's like saying, you know, he's congested because <clears throat> he's using decongestants. Uh, so get him off those, you know, things. And um, and so being completely invalidated, I thought like, oh, my God, maybe I am a drug addict. Um, you know, and, and when they talk about all the the lying and the steps, it's like I was ashamed. That's why I lied. I don't lie about other stuff. I lied about drugs because I'm not going to tell somebody, hey, I break the law every day and use this stuff called heroin that you think is terrible. Um and so, you know, I feel like if that part was acknowledged by anyone at any point in time, and I've had this conversation with my mom, you know, we, we, there's this automatic assumption of like, they're on drugs, they're lying, you know, don't believe anything that they're saying. And so there was no outlet for me to get the kind of help that I needed. And all I knew was heroin. I mean, I'd been in therapy since I was five. Um, but I didn't, you know, I could, didn't feel like I could trust any therapist. I mean, the one, the one shrink who I, I had told about the heroin was just like, you're a fucking asshole. And, you know, so wh why am I going to do that? Um, I mean, it's really, it, it's just so sad that we, that we refuse to acknowledge what's actually going on. And then when you start using again, is it fair to say that because of that experience, you fought or, or you you worked even harder to hide your use from other people? 
Yes, I think it's very fair to say that. I mean, you know, I try, I cobbled together stretches of sobriety. I mean, you know, I say it went on for until I was 32, but I wasn't on heroin the whole time. Um, I mean, I was off heroin much more than I was on it, um, you know, throughout that time. And it was, it was really, I, I saw it as the same as, you know, you've got chronic back pain and you have a flare up. So you need your pain killers. Um, and that's really what it was. I had no way, I had no tools. There was nothing I could do about it. That was, that was all I knew. And I, I hated myself for it. Now, obviously, we, we want everyone to go out and buy the book. So we'll skip over lots of stuff in here. We'll make this story a little well, we bit shorter. We want them to read the book. I don't, you know, steal it if they want to. I, I don't. Yeah, this is sure. A.B. Hoffman, go steal this book. Um, That's fine. I'll send you a copy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but you eventually enter another stage of recovery. Because as we said earlier, you had already entered sort of one um, when you decided that uh, well, I'll let you tell it. What what really finally yeah. made you realize you didn't want to use anymore? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when I I, I thought about this after I said I, I was recovering, that I, I hadn't actually begun to recover. My point was like I was, you know, trying to heal myself. Sure. Um, what happened was, um, I don't want to give away a surprise, but um, <laughs> I have kids. You'd probably, maybe you'd know that if you, you know, looked me up before or read the back of the book. But um so when my daughter was born, I had been sober for mm, a few months at that point. Um, and that was like my last major, you know, relapse. And I, I thought when the, the minute I met her, I was just like, there's no fucking way I'm, I'm using drugs again. I'm just not. And I, I felt it in my bones. But the problem is wanting something doesn't, you can't will that kind of shit to happen. In, in spite of, you know, what, what AA might tell you, um, God was not going to, I had pissed him off so much anyway. So like God, God was like, fuck you. Um, you know, you never played backgammon with me. Um, <laughs> so, so Ruby was born and, uh, and I, I started to feel when she was like a year old, um, I, I just fell into this black hole of depression and I knew what I needed, but I didn't want to, you know, open that door again. Um, and when I did, it was very short lived and, and horrifying enough to know that I needed to do something about it. And, you know, the whole time after Hazelden, that, that entire period, I thought about methadone all the time, but I couldn't go to a clinic every day because nobody knew about any of this stuff. So that was not even an option. Um, I knew about buprenorphine before I even tried heroin because Rob, uh, was participated in, in clinical trials in New York City before buprenorphine was even, you know, available. Um, so I ran into him at some point, like shortly after this relapse, and he was like, I told you to get on buprenorphine, you know, 25 years ago, um, or however long ago it was. And uh, I didn't, I knew that it was, I, I thought it was only for withdrawal. I didn't realize that it was also a maintenance drug. Um, and so I, I called, um, you know, every buprenorphine doctor around and, you know, nobody wants to see you if you, nobody can see you if you, uh, if your pee is clean, if there's no drugs in your system. And I just, I, I begged the last guy, like, you know, look, I, if I have to go out and score in order to see you, I'm not coming to see you and I'm going to fucking die and you don't want my, my blood on your hands. So, um, so that happened. And, and when the first uh, tablets, you know, dissolved under my tongue and however long it took for it to, you know, kick in, I knew 
like in a split second that I, I found the solution. It was, it was as obvious as heroin um, from the first hit, that feeling of like, this is what you need. Um, so, you know, there was no doubt in my mind that, that that was the answer. And I think the thing is, for me, like feeling like I'm, you know, thrashing around in the middle of the ocean and I'm, and I'm drowning and I'm singularly focused on not drowning, um, the buprenorphine was like a lifeboat. And that really changed the entire focus and trajectory of my life. Like I, I was, you know, no longer, you know, struggling to survive. I was able to live. So I, I started seeing a therapist um, again. And, you know, that's really when, when I started to recover. And also, you know, at Hazelden, they used sobriety and recovery. So it was, they were interchangeable. Sobriety is the answer. And what's so fucked up about that is like, if, you know, addiction, the medical physical condition of I'm using all this heroin. If I stop, I'm going to get sick. I stop, I go through the misery of withdrawal, you know, a couple of weeks later, a few days later, however long it takes for you to, you know, have some semblance of, of normalcy, you're no longer addicted to heroin, right? So your sobriety cured your addiction, but the compulsion to use heroin doesn't go away because you're sober. And there are all these studies about the, the um, you know, your neurotransmitters and the, and the plasticity of how everything is wired in your brain and, and very significant dysfunctional activity being deserved, uh, observed after, you know, very long periods of abstinence. And so, you know, I, I knew that, um, that I wouldn't have been able to unpack the emotional baggage that led to the compulsion to use drugs without buprenorphine. So, I mean, I really could give less than a fractional fuck if it invalidates my sobriety, because that's not, you know, I mean, like, if you think about it, everybody says, oh, sobriety is the answer, sobriety, you know, sobriety is the end all be all. And it's like, if you're, um, compulsive drug use is a mental health disorder, right? So if you're one of those people who like, um, you know, I have to like turn the key a thousand times or else my cat's gonna die kind of people, not turning the key, you're abstinent, but you still wanna turn the key. You still think your cat's gonna die. Like all of those, th those thoughts don't go away because you're sober. So like sobriety is hard because it's not the fucking answer. And I just, I don't understand all of this bravado of like I'm white knuckling it and you need to, you know, whatever. It's like, fuck that. I, I haven't suffered as much as other people but like I only have my own perspective and if I can choose to not suffer, I'm gonna choose that 100% of the time. And for a very long time, I was ashamed of that. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm not anymore. And I don't, I don't know how that, happened or why I'm certainly grateful for it, but um, you know, I couldn't have written this book until I felt that way. And when I, when I talk to people and they're like, Oh my God, you're so brave and courageous. I, it is the exact opposite of bravery and courage. I hit all of this stuff. I, I covered it up. I lied about it. I deceived everybody I know for, you know, more than 20 years. Everybody in my life thought I was 24 years sober when I told them what was actually going on. I mean, like, that's not courageous. Um, so, you know, the, the guilt and shame were just so overwhelming also. Like, I, I had to do something. So so then before we really get into talking about uh, drug policy and all that kind of stuff that you touched on there, let's pause real quick. If you wouldn't mind shouting out where people can follow you online, where they can buy the book, all that kind of good stuff. Okay. Um, you can buy the book at any bookstore or Amazon. You can get signed copies at splitrockbooks.com. It's my local bookstore. I would feel better about you buying it from them than giving Jeff Bezos more money. Um, 
Twitter, I'm on Twitter all the time. I try to be on Instagram more often. I could definitely use more Instagram friends. So, you know, that would be great. Um, I'm, my website is davidposes.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm david.poses and davidposes.author. Um, I've written a bunch of articles and have other stuff going on that's on my website. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. The Choose Your Struggle podcast has been so lucky to have numerous truly change-making authors on this show. From Adi Jaffe to Emily Dufton, we have been blessed by hearing them speak, and now it's time to grab their works. Now, you could go to Amazon if you wanted to shop online, but let's be honest, that's not the right choice. So I'm going to invite you to head over to my partner, Bookshop. If you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, again, that's bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, you're going to find all of your favorite books and you're going to support the podcast in the process. But that's not even the best part. Bookshop has an incredible program that allows you to select your favorite mom and pop or neighborhood bookstore and they will give them some of the proceeds from your order. Now, living here in Philly, that's been a really hard choice because we have fantastic bookstores all over, but I selected Harriet, which is a truly wonderful black-owned bookstore in Northern Philly. I love it, my wife loves it, we go there as much as we can. Honestly, why would you go anywhere else? So again, go check out Bookshop at bookshop.org shop CYS. You're gonna find the book you're looking for, you're gonna support your neighborhood bookstore, and you're gonna support the podcast in the process. So check it out today and go ahead and buy that book you've been waiting for. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So I appreciate that you touched on the buprenorphine piece because a lot of people that's still new to some people who are not as familiar with this, this scene. Uh, and, and you sort of, uh, you, you touched on that you had a friend who really was sort of hip to the game before it was, it was, you know, really uh, taken off uh, for, for those who aren't as aware, you know, talk a little bit about when did buprenorphine really come on the scene and, 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 you know, talk about being one of the early adopters, so to say. Um. Yeah, buprenorphine. Um, I believe it was available a little bit before the the um, drug act of two thousand. Um, and the idea, I mean, you know, buprenorphine had existed since nineteen sixty nine, um, but in order to be uh, sold in the United States, our lawmakers said it, it it had to be completely abuse proof because these fucking junkies are all a bunch of lying, you know, degenerates. So. Um, so they added the Narcan, which doesn't actually uh, affect you if uh, unless you shoot it. Um, so anyway, um, so the, the the drug act that passed mandated that doctors have um, an X waiver in order to prescribe it, and uh, they can only treat 125 patients at a time. So buprenorphine, a partial agonist, um, which means it's nowhere. You know, people say, oh, it's just as bad as heroin. I mean, you know, ask for buprenorphine after your next fucking hip replacement surgery and let me know how that goes. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, every doctor can prescribe any opioid. Um, they can prescribe fentanyl. They can prescribe lethal amounts of fentanyl, pharmaceutical fentanyl, um, if they want to, but 
7% of doctors uh, until very recent change um, had the X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. So, so the drugs that, you know, it's, it's mind boggling to me that the antidote is less accessible than the problem. Um, and so, uh, so recently when uh, I think by, yeah, Biden changed the rules so that any physician can prescribe buprenorphine to 10 patients, which sounds like a really good idea until you think about the fact that like doctors specialize in things. So I'm going to knock on some plastic surgeon's door and go, hey, you can prescribe buprenorphine, give it to me. You know, who knows if he wants to? Probably not, or she wants to. But either way, that doesn't make them qualified to, you know, treat you. It just means they can write the prescription. And for some people, that's that's enough. But I mean, you, you hear some very fucked up things that go on out in the world. I mean, buprenorphine is great because you can get it from your pharmacy um, in 30-day supply, unlike a methadone clinic, which doesn't trust you and, and all like that. And I'm hearing from so many people who went to a buprenorphine clinic that made them come in every day to get their dose, which is just completely fucking insane. I mean, you know, we want to get you, we want your life to get back to normal. Um, yeah, that's, that's really normal. Um, and so, you know, tons of people are buying diverted buprenorphine, um, you know, in the uh, illicitly. And that's actually totally fine because it's counterfeit proof. Um, the packaging that each individual film comes in, nobody is going to replicate that. It would cost a fucking fortune. Um, and even if they did, who's buying buprenorphine to get high? Like you can buy, we have fentanyl and we've spent billions of dollars to replicate this uh, fake packaging of buprenorphine that nobody is going to care about if we have, you know, the other drugs. Um, I mean, there, there, obviously there are some people who are, you know, so basically, so anybody who's using it is using it for um, its intended purpose, whether they're getting it illegally or not. And it's like, you know, I always have extra buprenorphine and I, I think it's horrifying that like if you needed buprenorphine right now and you couldn't get it, which is very likely because I'm very lucky, which is lucky, which is very fucked up that I should even be lucky enough to get something um, when there's a national health emergency of, of overdose. Um, if I give it to you, then I'm committing a crime. Um, and so are you. And so I, I will have hopefully saved you from overdosing on fentanyl because that's all that's out there right now. So by, by saving your life, and hopefully turning you on to the path to recovery, um, I get uh, arrested and, and go to jail, and so do you, which and, is and And this crazy. is all dated in very uh, sort of absurdist uh, thinking around drug use and drug policy. You know, using your example from before, you're talking about the 10-patient the uh, limit, if you, if you went to that same, uh, you know, plastic surgeon and said you can only treat 10 patients, or, or yeah. any any doctor who's and you said you can only prescribe ten people opioids this month. We would have yeah. doctors, rightfully so, saying I can't do business this way. And yet, if you want to treat people for those opioids, uh, you can only treat ten. Now, one way that that uh, some people have suggested, including you, and then I and I know that uh, for for those who don't know, uh, David is very active on social media. In fact, uh, so. The reason I have this question is that I saw somebody share a post of yours just this morning. 
uh, and I said, ha, huh, funny Ooh. coincidence. Uh, I'm, I'm interviewing today. Her name is Destiny. Shout out to Destiny, friend of the show. And she runs, she's the new director of uh, Harm Reduction here in Philadelphia, where I live. Uh, she asked me to ask you if you wouldn't mind talking about, she said, I completely agree with him on the, on the topic of safe supply. But in David's yeah. eyes, how would that work in our country? And do you think it's, it's actually realistic to expect that will ever happen here? Um, that's a really easy and impossible question. <laughs> um, I couldn't do what I do if I 